everyone, and welcome to the Metacast by Novik, a podcast in which we explore the business and future of video games. I'm Aaron Bush, and today I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Alexis Bont. Alexis is the COO of Stillfront Group, a global and growing group of gaming studios that publishes primarily on mobile and the web. And he is also an active board member and investor, among other accolades. And at Novik, we've been Longtime followers of Stillfront, so I'm really looking forward to diving in and learning more today. Alexis, welcome. Uh, thank you, Aaron. Very, very happy to uh, to have the chance to speak with you. And uh, I'm an avid reader of uh, of Navic, so uh, always, always great to uh, also uh, speak with you. And I was very happy to actually meet you in person uh, not that long ago. Yeah, no, that was fun at Gamescom. Well, I guess to start, Alexis, could you quickly just tell us your games industry story and how? you know, how that led to joining Stillfront. And then we'll we'll dive in a bit more on all things Stillfront later in the conversation. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, um, um, you know, I'm part of this kind of generation that, that they grew up playing games. You know, I started with the Spectrum 48K, then the Amiga 500, uh, you know, it was the most exciting purchase I ever made and saved years for it was a, was a PC 386, so I could play Wing Commander, and uh, so you know I'm definitely a big games fan. You know, uh, I, I have way too many one more turns of Civilization, uh, so that's that's really a you know clearly a passion uh, for me uh, video games. Um, and then I actually went into um, um, a di- different direction. I became an entrepreneur. I uh, started a, a a company out of business school uh, that was called tradeok.com when I was uh, 21 years old. Uh, that didn't work out. Um, but, you know, it was two years intense MBA, I call it. Uh, but um, it still resulted in, a, in an exit to, to Ipsos a few years after, so we were quite lucky. But that gave me the opportunity to meet uh, the people at lastminute.com. So the founder of lastminute.com, a guy called Brent Orberman. And lastminute.com, for people who don't know it, was kind of the Expedia of Europe was one of kind of the first large, you know, internet um, success stories. Um, it also got battered a lot. It was the last company to uh, to IPO before the bubble burst back in 2000. So the IP- I think we IPO'd in April, April or March 2000, and then the bubble wow. burst right after, right after us. And uh, and so I was part. I was not a founder at lastminute.com. I was what we called, you know, founding team. You know, part of the founding team. So which means, you know. One of the first uh, employees there, and uh, was very lucky. You know, we we had a very crazy roller coaster ride. I think we, we were one of the first unicorns in Europe after the IPO. I think we were worth uh, the company was worth like one point one billion dollars, and we were making less revenue than the pub where we had our meetings. Um, and then fast forward, you know, to September 11, two thousand and one. Uh, you know, the whole tourism industry, you know completely crashed and, and, and stopped. Uh, and our, I think our market cap, we had $88 million in the bank and our market cap was 48 million. We were worth less than half wow. the cash we had in the bank. But just at that time, the business started to take over and started to work because the airlines started giving us uh, you know, uh, stock, the hotels started giving us rooms to sell. The whole business basically started working when we were Everyone thought we were dead. I think people were calling us last minute bomb, uh, which was interesting. Uh, and then fast forward um, a few years, uh, we sold the company in 2005 to Sabre for um, $1.1 billion. Uh, so at that time, I you know, um, uh, became financially independent and, uh, and decided to pursue my childhood dream, which was to start a, a game studio. So I did a few angel investments here and there. Very bad ones because I didn't know how to invest. So lost a big part of what I made in lastbit.com in bad investments. So if you want to know how to do bad investments, uh, ask me. I've learned a bit since then, but that first phase of angel investment was really bad. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to do was to do video games. And uh, I got quite early into the kind of the... Basically, I got very frustrated because I said, I'm going to start playing again because I didn't have time to play. I realized I couldn't play any games on my PC because my PC was not powerful enough. So I had to buy a new PC. Then there was all the anti-piracy stuff. And I, I think I lost my card that was in the box. So I couldn't even play the game that I bought. And I thought these strategy games, they should be online, right? And so I went on, didn't know better and decided, you know what? I'm going to find a team to help me do a, a civilization uh, on the browser with real people. And that game's called eRepublic.com. 
uh, it was very f- full of flows. You know, I co-designed that uh, with a team of, we were six people. We did it in six months for the beta. Uh, and um, I mean, it was so badly programmed that uh, we were hacked by 4chan within three days of uh, releasing it. And they filled, they replaced every image with a Pokemon. Uh, but we fixed it and we stuck with it. And it, in time, it's a game that was been played by more than 10 million people. Uh, is actually still going. Uh, there's an incredible community around it, much smaller now, you know, about 50,000 people play it, but still a profitable and running game. And that was the foundation uh, of your Republic Labs. Uh, after that, I tried to design other games that were uh, all unsuccessful and realized that maybe I was a better manager than a game designer. So surrounded myself with other people that knew what they were doing. And eventually we were able to, um, to successfully uh, pivot into mobile games uh, and started doing 4X strategy games uh, with an historical context because we couldn't afford an IP. So we thought, hey, what's an IP everybody understands and is cheap? And so we started doing, you know, Age of Lords, which is a medieval theme 4X strategy game. Uh, then after that, we did a World War II game uh, called World at War. And at that, that time, you know, the, the studio started becoming, you know, very, you know, very profitable, growing quite fast. And we got spotted by all the usual suspects, you know, the Ubisofts, the Vivendis, the EAs, who approached us to, um, to acquire us. Um, and, um, and at the time, um, I realized that, you know, I'd seen, you know, I'd, I started at the same time or a bit before, you know, people like Ilke at Supercell or Ricardo at King, you know, were all friends. And clearly, you know, Republic had a nice business that was profitable, but it was never going to be by itself the next supercell, the next king. And I know what a billion dollar business looks like. And that's not what we had with with Republic. So I realized that I I need to basically either sell this or join forces with other people to make this bigger. And that's how, you know, I ended up um, meeting Stillfront. Gotcha. No, thanks for sharing that story. And fun fact, when I was doing my research for this conversation, I stumbled across your YouTube channel, uh, including your your 60 second pitch for eRepublic from 2008, along with, you know, introducing your beta and things like that. Uh, but it was it was a fun. Um, it was fun to see. I did that pitch from hospital. Really? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was just out of a really bad operation, and uh, and I did, and I was basically, I think, I had two days after the, the operation, I was in a really bad state, but I had to do the pitch, so that's when I did the pitch. Oh man! Well, whatever the case, I'm, I'm sure your your 14 years ago self would be um, proud of where you ended up today. Um, maybe surprised of some of the the twists and turns that uh, that have happened along the way. But I guess to to zoom forward to Stillfront, um, we don't need to go through all the history there. If anything, I'd, I'd just kind of like to zoom to to the present and just catch mm-hmm. people up to speed about like what exactly Stillfront is today. So I guess, Alexis, could you just paint the picture of what is Stillfront in 2022? Yeah, I mean, so Stillfront today is um, 23 game studios across the world. A thousand six hundred people, uh, game professionals uh, that work in those studios. Um, still, uh, you know, uh, uh, quite a light um, headquarter team. Although we have strengthened the the team at headquarter, you know, we we are strong believers that that really the the studios are 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 where you know the core and where the town needs to be. We're big believers in the fact that you need to keep decisions as close as possible to the players as possible. So we have this kind of inverted pyramid uh, kind of system, you know, s- similar to Supercell, where you're trying to have as, man- as much of the decisions as possible with the game teams. The studio heads are there to, you know, get, you know, a lot of the game teams to uh, to basically do their job. And at headquarters, you know, we're kind of, you know, providing support governance to, to the studio heads and also more and more, you know, uh, what we call kind of growth acceleration, finding collaborations, finding synergies. And that's really the one of the things that, is least understood about Silfront is that we work extremely hard on synergies and collaborations across the studios. That's the thing that actually convinced me to um, to join Silfront when uh, when I was at, when I was at Republic. It was the fact that I was going to access get access to this all of this collective intelligence in terms of shared knowledge uh, at the beginning, but also potentially. You know, game engines. You know, stronger. You know, uh, marketing talent. Um, things that I could not have 
by being a, a small studio. But at the same time, I really enjoyed having a small studio, but but I wanted to be able to punch like a large studio. And that's what we're trying to uh, to create here at Stillfront and that we've been basically building on uh, more and more. Gotcha. Well, let's break that down um, in a couple of ways. I guess first, yeah. just to poke a bit deeper into the centralization versus decentralization lens. Could you talk a bit more about that, what that really means in practice? Like what exactly is centralized versus what exactly is decentralized? And so why is that? So, we, so the first thing we try to, I don't like to say the word centralized because then actually you'll see even the way we centralize, we do it a bit differently. But let's say, let's for, for simplicity's sake, let's say centralized. The first thing we try to centralize is all the boring stuff. At least all the boring stuff if you're a game maker. I don't think it's boring uh, if you do it well. So, for example, everything that's like related to finance, for example, uh, you know, a lot of those studios that, 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 we, that we've acquired, you know, they'd be, you know, some of them will be 30, 40, 50 people studios. In certain cases, Candy Writer, when we acquired them, were, were, there was just 10 of, us, 10 of them. Uh, you know, they're, they no, don't necessarily have a very strong finance function and they're definitely not necessarily ready to be part of a public company. Um, so for that, we have also actually distributed systems. So we have a financial hub in the US and we have a financial hub in Europe. And they will basically, depending on the studio, cover from 100% to 50% of all kind of the finance and accounting uh, needs and all this sort of stuff. So that's that's the first thing. Same thing for legal and, and, and all this sort of stuff. So that's kind of all the kind of the, the administrative stuff uh, we try and get out of the way of the studios when necessary and, and kind of, you know, help them, help them collaborate. Um, one thing where we realized, and we didn't do it at the beginning, that was necessary uh, was, uh, and that's the more exciting stuff, and that we're just starting with it, is all kind of the talent stuff. So, um, you know, certain studios, you know, they will have a few, you know, HR or talent professionals. Some studios won't have it, but there's clearly, there's a clear need of coordination across our studios. There's a clear need to, you know, really help, you know, not just in terms of recruitment, but career path and all this sort of stuff. And that's something we, uh, we uh, just recruited a head of talent. Uh, she's called Elisa. She used to work with me at lastminute.com, actually. So I'm very happy that, uh, well, she was happy to work with me again. And, um, and she's basically going to help me, you know, make sure that we get all of the talent teams working together in the, in a closer way. Right now it was doing, it was happening, in the more kind of informal shared knowledge way. And we're going to have, it's kind of much more like centralized collaboration uh, way of doing this. We still keep the talent, you know, at the studio levels, but we make sure that it works together. So that's another way. Let's go into stuff that really has a, a more clearly direct impact in terms of, in terms of numbers and revenues. Uh, so another thing that we're, that we've been doing since the beginning, since we've acquired Good Game Studios. So Good Game Studios had quite a large marketing team. Um, that was very, very strong in performance marketing. Definitely, you know, they were able to work with much more channels than most of our other studios were able to work. Most of our other studios had maybe one or two or three marketing professionals, not 20 or 30. Um, so what we did is uh, we basically set up the, um, the Good Game Studios team as a marketing hub that is able to provide a variety of services Mostly performance marketing, but now we want to extend that to other things like go-to-market and other things that you need uh, to all of our studios. And so some of our studios use the marketing app completely and have completely outsourced their marketing to, uh, to the marketing app. But that's always challenging because, as you know, you want, the, you want the marketing team to be as close as possible to the game team. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they are working in Hamburg. So that's where we have to be careful. But And, and, and also... And some studios will just, you know, outsource working with certain channels. Because as you know, since IDFA, one of the really important things and one of the big challenges for startups is whereas before you were able to scale a new game just by using Facebook and then extend it to other channels. Now, if you want to launch a new game successfully, you probably have to work with 20 different marketing channels. So that's something that we're able to, to, to give to, to all of our studios. So that's a, another part is the marketing app. And then maybe just to focus on the most important ones. Another one, which is very simple, is engine chairs. Um, so, uh, doing games is difficult. It's super hard. Uh, as you know, uh, most often than not, you know, you're going to start a prototype and, uh, you're going to have to kill prototype after prototype. You're going to do a soft launch and the game looks great. And then they will be missing. 
all the KPIs are great except one KPI, and you can't fix it, and you just simply can't launch the game and scale it. And some studios who now will will you know will try for a year, two years, three years, and might not succeed, right? Well, the advantage we have is we have engines, game engines that we know work and that we know function. And sometimes our studios that have this this game engines don't have the capacity to do other versions of that game, maybe another historical theme or for another market. Um, a good example is the grand strategy engine that uh, we have for Bytro, which is a, a different type of strategy game. It's different to 4X. It's quite unique, actually, quite special. Um, and while that engine has been used by um, another studio called uh, Dorado uh, to create, you know, actually one, what, what is one of our latest uh, success, uh, you know, largest success games, a game called Conflict of Nation, that is a game that, you know, is doing tens of millions of euros uh, since launch. And that's a game that was only possible because, you know, we could do the engine share. And we have other engine shares uh, of this kind. Um, another thing that we've been doing is, for example, BitLife uh, is a very successful game from Candy Writer. Candy Writer is a small team. They didn't really have the ability. It's a, it's a word-based game with a very complex language. So look, it's not a simple localization to turn into another language. It's actually you have to reprogram and do a lot of work there. And so Good Game Studios was able to take the BitLife engine and do a Spanish version, a Portuguese version, and we'll be doing other versions of that game. And we have many, many other examples of that. And that's really one of the keys uh, as to why in what is a difficult market, you know, according to many, many uh, uh, analysis, it's actually it's the mobile games market, at least in the Western countries, has been declining this year. I think it's temporary. I think we'll return to growth next year, but it's been declining. And we've been able to actually beat the market in terms of growth. Barely, it's been very difficult, but we've been able to, to um, you know, to have positive organic growth in the last two quarters. Awesome. There's a lot there to unpack. So thanks for thanks for walking through all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I I've noticed too that like what is often misunderstood about Stillfront just sort of lies like in that that model that you described just being different from what many other teams across the games industry have seen and it's probably one of those things that it's hard to really get a get a good grasp on um from the outside without like experiencing some of like the actual like synergies that that you laid out like once you're in it what like you know, you like then you start to get the feeling of, oh, now I can focus on the things that matter most to my team. Oh, now I can focus more efficiently on, um, you know, whether it's UA or whether it's, you know, whatever function because of the support from the parent company allowing it to be structured a bit more differently um, to, to enable, you know, all these teams to not have to focus on it themselves. Um, and I imagine too, even for, for you um, and you know the rest of the leadership team, you probably didn't have all the answers, you know, both at the very beginning, but even you know just over the past few years, it's been a learning journey of how do you manage this kind of business and this industry. And so I'm curious if you have any like top learnings from the past few years on how you've like improved on this the system over time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's completely correct. You know, we keep learning uh, on this, and it's and it's really difficult to do. I mean, quite honestly, it is not easy to do. Uh, you know, we're definitely at the opposite spectrum uh, of a bunch of bankers just adding studios. You know, that's definitely not what we're doing. Uh, you know, each time. So the way you we do it first is every single studio that we've acquired, um, every single you know um, uh, studio that's kind of joined the Stillfront uh, group. Um, we we've always been thinking okay what can this bring to the puzzle that we don't have what is the piece of the puzzle that we're missing so take for example six waves right japan is one of the biggest markets in games uh it was minuscule for us in terms of revenues we couldn't really break through we had um, one of our games uh big farm mobile harvest which was doing okay i think it was about eight percent of revenue was, was was coming from japan but none of our other games could, could break into Japan or work in Japan. So we end up to fight Japan as a market that would be interesting. And then if we're able to break into it, or if we found the right way to break into it, you know, that could bring, you know, um, a lot of value to our other studios, right? Because web games, which potentially could get in. And so that Six Waves is uh, specialized in publishing, uh, you know, other studios' games in Japan. Um, and 
and they're actually just happens they do forex strategy games, which is something which is you know very close to our hearts because that's where we all started, uh, at least the the, the initial uh, studio. So we could understand that very well. And obviously, you know, when they do publishing deals with third party with third parties, you know, they have to give a percentage of their revenues to that third party. Um, so we're going to continue doing that, but we're going to add to that to six ways. Well, now why don't you do you know why don't you publish you know uh, our own games in Japan as well? And all of that revenue share stays within the group. So we improve your margins and we allow our games to break into Japan. So that's one way that we were able to do it. Uh, but of course, that's full of difficulties. There's some games that we thought would work in Japan. And then Six Wave sells is actually, you know, this kind of game is never going to work in Japan. So a lot of your assumptions, you need to know a lot of your assumptions are probably going to be wrong and you need to discuss them upfront. Uh, with the studios and then some things, you know, won't work. So another thing that, that we, we, we did is, you know, we never force the studio to say, oh, you've got to work with the marketing hub now because, you know, it's going to be much better. We spend a lot of time to convincing. Uh, we, we do like, like your marketing hub does a free audit of what they're doing and say, hey, we think we could help you with these channels and all that. And, and what you learn is sometimes, you know, the studio say, well, thanks, but no thanks, we're not going to do it. And then you learn that maybe, and then you see, ah, they lose six months and then they go back to marketing up and they do it. It's like, ah, maybe we should have been a bit more decisive, a bit more insistent with the studio. And um, so I think maybe that's one of the learnings is it's very difficult to get the right balance between not forcing a studio to do something. And also when you really know that they're missing out on something, how do you, how do you make them see faster uh, that this is the right thing to do uh, without ever falling into a situation where they lose ownership and responsibility because the day the studio heads and the game teams lose the ownership and the responsibility of what they're doing and they feel like they're only doing what i tell them to do or what the people who work with me tell them to do that's the way the, that's the day the model breaks right and i'm sure there's a balance to yeah the balance there is pretty pretty difficult to strike sometimes especially now that you have 23 studios just like me even trying to like figure out like how you manage all of those pieces and make sure that like you're thinking you know you're thinking like thoughtfully about like each one um seems like a big big growing task but the part that i want to double click into a bit more like is on that cultural side of things i'm curious um what it means to be part of the still front family and that's a phrase that i've heard you know thrown out a lot even with the latest six waves acquisition like all of the the press releases and such you know excited to welcome six waves to the still front family um and so i'm curious how do you foster that culture of togetherness while still enabling all these teams to operate mostly autonomously still mostly entrepreneurially um but still as one team it's very difficult um the way we do it it's through a lot of work so obviously you know uh, i have a team that helps me uh so um they're all like very experienced uh, you know vp svp level you know industry professionals uh that have been you know working in this for a long time so uh in the us um i have um, amy you know she's um ex um activision and she's helping me kind of you know provide the support and governance mostly to the us studios uh in alex in 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 kind of you know in europe you know uh, we have armin uh, busan who's the ex uh, cfo cpo vino games and he's helping me you know with with mostly the european studios then I have, uh, for the rest of the world, I have um, Alex Alexon, who's ex-Google Play and ex-Wahey, who's helping me with, with, with those studios as well. So, so they basically are on a almost kind of a daily contact uh, or at least weekly contact with, with the key people in the studios to make sure that, you know, that, that things are going the right way, to make sure they're not missing any collaboration opportunities and all sorts of stuff. So that's really a, a day-to-day work, making sure that they speak with each other uh, so that's kind of you know the the, the 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 kind of I would say the top down kind of work. And obviously we have the the, the usual stuff. You know, it's the uh, we have a, a tool called Stillbase. It sounds really basic, but we have a Stillbase in there. We have it goes from uh, onboarding, you know, a mini onboarding mini game that explains to you what it means to be part of the Silfront family, <laughs> part of a public company, uh, to uh, an address book with everyone's picture. Because if I get an email from Aaron at I don't know where. Uh, I mean, that's 1,600 people. I might not know who Aaron is. I go to the writer's book and then I have the list of not only what you do, but actually your skill sets, what you're very good at and all this sort of stuff. So, so that helps as well. 
Uh, and then we have what we call, uh, you know, regular meetings. So we're actually uh, going very soon to Jordan, uh, uh, 70 of us, so all the kind of all of the studio execs, and we're going to meet uh, at what we call Stillcon in uh, in Jordan. And we do we have two twi we do that twice a year, uh, where all of the execs meet, and then we do that also. Uh, we, we started doing that also by um, line. So we had a marketing uh, team meeting uh, in Amber a few weeks ago, where all of the marketing professionals from different studios got together. Uh, and we're doing a, one for live operations specialists uh, in a few weeks. So we get the we get the companies and the guys from the, from the from different studios to actually meet physically. Not just, of course, we have the Slack groups and all that. But I'm a big believer uh, in people have to meet and you know have a beer together, or do something together in order to uh, to to then they can go back to remote, hybrid, whatever it is. But they need to meet from time to time. So we we really you know, work very hard in, in doing this. And I've actually just sent today the agenda for Stillcon in Jordan. And that's something that has gone through 10 iterations, making sure that these workshops is not just, you know, you're organizing, here's the strategy and here's what is, we're doing. Actually, every studio is talking. We're actually, you know, it's probably 10% you're organized talking and 80 or 90%, you know, the studios talking about specific important things that help everybody. Gotcha. No, that's really interesting. I'm personally like just obsessed and love talking about like structure and like how to manage, you know, growth and large teams under, you know, when you're trying, when you have like unique objectives and you're offer, operating a bit differently. So it's all super fascinating to me um, to watch you guys um, execute and figure this out. Um, so, so yeah, great job so far on figuring out how to, yeah, to do and, this. And we're and, and we're still learning and we're making mistakes. The key thing is not, is not the, the problem is not that we make mistakes. We will always make mistakes. It's realizing the, that we made the mistake quickly and fixing it quickly. And that you can do it by having a, a, a culture of openness, trust, humility, and zero politics. I am completely allergic to politics. The moment I see something that remotely looks like politics, I take my bazooka and I shoot it. <laughs> uh, so we're so that's another thing. I think the politics is the death of companies. So that's something that we've been very, very careful about. You know, making sure that everybody gets very direct and very frank feedback uh, in terms of how we're doing things. Not always easy, and sometimes it's uh, and sometimes it, it can it can be hard. But uh, I think it's the only way to uh, to work. It's only the respect. It's the only respectful way to work with people. Right. Right. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, Shoot your politics with a bazooka. I love it. Yeah. Um, so let's go ahead um, and talk about M&A, which um, has been a cornerstone of Stillfront's strategy mm -hmm. over the past decade or so at this point. Um, I guess just to, to set off that part of the conversation, just at a high level, what does Stillfront look for in its acquisitions? Any checklist points? What, what makes you look at a company and say, that one would be great for the Stillfront group. Yeah, I think the first thing that we look at is um, what are we missing, you know, in terms of uh, you know game vertical, where we'd like to be. Uh, I mean, we're quite weak, for example, in sports, in the sports vertical, you know, um, like racing vertical, RPG vertical also could be better. Uh, so, you know, very interested in game verticals where you can have evergreen games. So that's really the key for us. So that's why you've seen us stay away from um, hyper casual. I think that's very hard to manage. It gives you a lot of volatility. So we went into casual games, but we try to avoid the hyper volatile casual games that you get with, with hyper casual. So that's the first thing we look at our geography as well. Is this, is this, is this acquisition going to allow us to enter a new geography and then basically bring our portfolio of games? You know, we now have something like 74 games in the active portfolio. Can we bring some of our games there and get some extra growth for our studios? So, so that's another thing. So game drawer, geography, and then there's some very clear things that we look at. You know, a lot of us, you know, still, still a lot of our studios are still managed by the founders, entrepreneurs. I myself, as you know, I'm a game founder. We are all shareholders of Stillfront. None of us is a majority shareholder. You know, there's many studio heads actually right now that have more shares than I have in Stillfront. Um, and uh, but we hold this right, so so it's our money. <laughs> uh, so we treat it like our money. So we're quite uh, demanding uh, for anyone that joins the family, and this is where it becomes the family because again, it's our money, um, and uh, it's the shareholders' money and our money because we're shareholders. Um, 
And, and here, what we do is um, we look for um, game studios that have a lot of experience. I think that's, there's nothing that replaces experience. So I'm always very careful when I see um, a game studio that uh, has massive immediate success on their first game and, you know, and, 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 and try and sell right away. They've never had a failure. I've tried to stay away uh, from those studios because I know that they're going to have failure. This is, this, this is the nature of the business, you know? You're going to have successes and failures no matter what happens. And the good teams are the teams that have been through success and failure and they have been able to stick together and then have another success, right? So that's what I look for. Uh, this other thing that we look for is um, uh, profitable studios. Uh, this is a very hard business. It's very difficult to become profitable, as we all know. Uh, once you break through, it's an amazing business, a great business. But to get there is a very high bar. Uh, and it's a very exclusive club of studios that have been able to not only be profitable, be profitable for several and several years. So that's the other thing that we look for, because that means that that's, that's people that know what they're doing, if you find that. And the final thing, which is the most important, is... Are these people, is this someone that I will trust and will trust me and will have the humility to listen if we give feedback? Because yes, we want to give you as much autonomy as possible, but that doesn't mean that you do whatever you want. Uh, and it is important. We, yes, we don't have a green lighting process, but if you have a pet project and it is a pro pet project and I tell you it's a pet project, uh, Listen, because, um, and yes, I'm not going to force you to close it down, but if a few of us tell you it's a pet project and your peers from other studios tell you this looks like a pet project, the KPIs are not there, I mean, the game team should take the decision to, to kill the game. And are, they, are these teams that are going to listen to that? I think that's important. Right. And, you know, as, as we mentioned, Stillfront's been doing this for about a decade now. And over the past few years has accelerated its pace of deals um, as the company has grown too. And, you know, as the market was more favorable to um, a, a faster pace of deals too. Um, I'm curious what the team has learned um, about successful M&A in the process. I think you, you just shared a, a great list of features that you look for, but through like any mistakes or just as you've gone along, how how have you and the Stillfront team improved in M and A and ways other teams can learn from? Yeah, I think uh, first of all, I think that you know it's a market where there's still quite a lot of good M and A opportunities. Um, I think there's been a there's been a correction there's a correction in the market that we saw obviously in the public in the public companies. You know, we've all had a big haircut on our on our multiple valuations. I think the private markets um, always take a bit more time to react to that. But I think now we're, uh, we're seeing a situation where the private markets have caught on to that and you're seeing opportunities at more reasonable valuations versus you know, where we are, to, we are today. So I think there's, there's, there's ongoing opportunities in M&A and we're still looking at a lot of opportunities and I think there's good companies uh, uh, potentially. Um, what I've learned is, and what we've learned collectively is um, don't rush it get to know the teams. Some of the teams that became part of the family, we've been speaking for with since I joined and they joined, you know, so they've been you know, maybe three years before they joined us. And then it's not the right timing and we correct and or it's not the right valuation or not the right pricing, but we keep on talking. So these things can take years. It's about building the relationship, understanding, you know, who it is. So that's the first thing that that, that, that is important. The second thing, which I where I think we've been quite disciplined, especially when you know valuations were getting a little crazy is if you have troubles, you know, justifying the numbers and, and if the, the numbers that you get from the team, you know, make sure that ignore the investment banker numbers because <laughs> the investment banker will always show you an hockey stick. <laughs> Just ignore that. <laughs> do your own scenarios, do your own numbers from what you know, you know, discuss that with the team and understand that. And if you can't get evaluation that makes sense versus what you think the company is capable of, even with your help, versus what the investment banker uh, you know, is telling you the, the company will do, uh, just walk away. Uh, and I think we've been quite disciplined in, in doing that. I mean, we've made 18 acquisitions. Some acquisitions right now, I know, look much more successful than others. Um, but I don't think it's you can judge an acquisition in the first year or in the first two years uh, after the acquisition. I think you need to judge an acquisition after five years. 
uh, and that's when you know if it's if it's worked out uh, or not. I mean, we we're quite open, for example, about you know Super Free not not performing very well um, right after the acquisition. And now you know in the past three quarters they've launched you know for I think three games in a row they've been successful. Um, so you know it's 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 constant it's constant work uh, that you need to do. So that's I think that's another learning is. You know, the, the, the company that you acquire that just kills it six months after the acquisition doesn't mean that it's okay, it's all good, just let it go, it's going to be fine. And the company that's not doing so well six months after the acquisition, that doesn't mean that that's, a, that's, that's, that's an acquisition where you made a mistake. If you, st if, if you made your homework before and if you paid a fair price for it, I mean, unless, which can happen, you know, unless something massive happens that, 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 that breaks, you know, your, uh, your assumptions, then you know there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to make that a successful acquisition. Mm -hmm. It's hard about, work. Gotcha. What about on the like after the acquisition closes? Any best practices, lessons learned about now that a team is in? How do you successfully integrate them, get them up to speed with how Stillfront operates? Um, it might be easier for you guys than other teams, considering the level of autonomy that you give. But even so, any any lessons learned there? Yeah, no, I mean, so we, we have an onboarding process that's actually quite honed by now because it's it's eighteen uh, acquisitions at least since I've since I've since I've joined. Um, I think I think the learning there is um, you know be very very disciplined about your onboarding process. Uh, one thing I think where it was where it was definitely more challenging is the acquisitions we made during the COVID period, where we were not able to meet face-to-face -face, uh, the founders or they're go and see the founders face-to-face -face, uh, during the onboarding period. I think that's a lot more challenging. A lot of stuff gets lost in translation. So um, I'm not saying, you know, hopefully we'll never have a situation like that again. Uh, but uh, definitely, you know, you need to be foot on the ground, meet the studios, be with them. That's why I spend so much time on airplanes. And so does my team is, uh, you know, we try and go and visit the studios very regularly. Uh, FaceTime uh, is important. There's a lot of stuff that you can do over Zoom, email, uh, but then you know there's the intangible stuff uh, in any M&A deal is super, super important. So, uh, so I think some of the challenges that we had uh, more recently were definitely linked to the fact that we were not able to meet face to face because that creates communication issues and also stuff and all that 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 actually get sold in, a, in, in, in an hour or two hours if you're just face-to-face. -face. Right. Um, last question on M&A um, from me. Um, you know, just from, you know, putting my investor hat on, having, you know, studied a bunch of other, you know, more acquisitive-oriented companies in the past, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, as a company acquires and grows, in order to you know continue moving the needle in the same way, um, obviously or, organic growth is a part a part of that formula for sure. But it often means that the teams need to either acquire more companies or acquire bigger companies or some mix of that in order to to continue growing at you know whatever whatever pace you're you're looking for in public markets. Um, but obviously, when you do that. That comes with risk, right? Um, you know, accelerating the pace of acquisitions or the size of deals means there are just more pieces to think about and more places to go wrong. Um, so I'm curious from your lens, you know, as a public company who's now, you know, acquired 18 businesses and is larger than than you used to be, um, how do you think about mitigating those risks or thinking about the opportunities there? Yeah. I think it's about making sure that you're scaling at the right speed and a speed where your team and processes and tools can absorb. I think that's 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 one of the things. So that's why we've, um, you know, we famously say that we, you know, we want to be light at that quarter level, but we have recruited quite actively, you know, a team to basically allow us to be to, to scale there better. Um, we also, you know, it, we've always been about two legs. You know, we have the M and A leg and we have the organic growth leg. Um, and, and it's very important to, you know, to make sure that, 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 that we're putting the effort that we need to put in terms of making sure that we have this organic growth engine, you know, working for us. It's, um, people forget that, you know, it's, we have, you know, we have, we have a, a lot of very mature games, right? So the fact that we are mature in terms of, uh, you know, they've been around for a long time. Uh, so 
it's 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 pretty. Um, so I think people have, have have not really realized that it's pretty exceptional that we've been able to grow faster than the market. You know, with games that have been around in certain cases for you know seven, eight, nine, ten years, right? So clearly, that's that 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 engine is working, and. Of course, you know, with 23 games, you're always going to have a game which has a, a, an issue and you're always going to have a game that works. So hopefully you hope that things balance out. And over a year, full year, over over two years, it always balances out. But you always have a quarter where it's harder because maybe, well, this quarter you were unlucky. You had, three, three, you had problems with three games and, 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 and you didn't have a good surprise with one game. And the next quarter you have a good surprise with three games. So that that's something that you'll never be able to fully control. Uh, but what, you, what I can control is is how we grow over the long term and kind of improving the processes there and all that. And in terms of M&A, um, I think, again, it's about discipline. Um, I think if we're able to have this long-term, stable, organic growth, uh, then the pressure to do bigger, ever bigger M&A deals and take you know, ever more risks is not really there uh, that much. And Sometimes a small M&A deal could, in our case, if you do synergies, could have a big bang. So um, if you look at, you know, um, let's look at a small acquisition. So a studio called Babel, which was actually acquired at the same time as it was acquired. I think that's a studio that when it was acquired was making, I think, three, four million dollars of revenues. But it was a publisher in the Middle East. And by being part of Stillfront, we were able to basically get that publisher to get access to games and, you know, and marketing, you know, uh, resources that he definitely didn't have before. And now that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the studio that's, you know, that's grown close to 10 X since then. And that's a big impact. So sometimes you don't have to do a very big M and acquisition to have a big impact. If that makes any sense, if you have your synergies lined up in the right way. So that's how we're trying to think about it. Uh, if you think about it, that's how we think about, you know, kind of have different pieces of the puzzle. And sometimes, yeah, we'll take a bit more risk on certain things. You know, we're still entrepreneurial. Right. Um, before talking about the future of Stillfront and other things that you're excited about, really quickly, I just want to touch on um, just the notable changes in the mobile games industry that we've seen. Obviously, you mentioned IDFA. That's, that's definitely been one of the big um, influences lately. But I'm curious how Stillfront thinks about adapting to the headwinds in the mobile games industry um, you know where you see opportunity to to double down um, what you are or are not worried about would just love your your take on what's going on and how you're thinking about moving forward through this I mean first of all I think we're incredibly lucky to be working in this industry I mean, it's an amazing industry. I mean, you, what kind of industry is there in the world where you can have a team of five, seven, 10, 15 people that create a product, a game that can be played worldwide by millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people and can generate, you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of, of revenues. I mean, that's pretty incredible. It's very hard to get. Uh, and I think it's become harder and you need more things to get there, but it's still possible. You still see it. I think that's the first thing that, to me, you know, that's that's the thing that keeps me excited uh, all the time is the incredible reach that just a few talented people can have, and the number of people that you can impact. And quite frankly, you know, just you know, you know, create hobbies for people, which is super cool. You know, just just give people you know fun and entertainment and create a hobby for them and something that they enjoy doing and create relationships between them. So, to me, that's really the the fundamental thing that drives me is is that is the ability to to do that and touch many people with fun products fun games and we all have our i know for you maybe a forex strategy game you know might not be a lot of fun but for the people it's super and for and and, and for me you know a, a mastery game might not be you know my idea of fun but for someone else it's their idea of fun so i think that's that's really that's really incredible i think the things that that in, ter in terms of the industry uh i think there's a few things that are happening uh, the first thing is um, VC money is drying up a little bit for the normal free-to-play studios. And I think that's, if you link that with, you know, the, the, the difficulty to scale for new games, I think that's making it a bit more difficult if you're not a super talented team, uh, a very strong team to basically launch a new studio and, and, and create it. But the flip side of that is if you're a super talented team that's really good and knows what they're doing, you've got less competition. 
So I think you can do, I think there's, it's an opportunity uh, as well. Um, so that's one side of the equation. Uh, I think the other side is obviously, you know, the gold rush around Web3 is now, you know, is kind of, you know, uh, quieted down as we entering into a, a crypto winter. Some people actually saying it's not a crypto winter, it's a crypto ice age. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, and I think that's actually a good thing because you had a lot of confusion, a lot of very bad teams doing, you know, crap. Uh, uh, but when you think about it, you know, some of the fundamentals behind, you know, uh, you know, doing Web3 games, which is about, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, ownership and, uh, you know, generating things around, you know, your generated content and potentially getting rewarded for the content that you create and all sorts of stuff are really interesting. So um, as an investor, you know, I'm in, I've invested in a lot of startups that I think are the more serious ones that are working in the space. And it's a space I'm looking at very, very closely, um, uh, obviously. So I think there, there's a lot of opportunities. There's still a lot of cash because the, the VCs have raised a lot of money and are interested in investing, but, you know, they're no longer investing over the weekend. You're going to have to go through DD now, which is, you know, what I had to go through when I started my company. Welcome to the real world. So I think that's that's another um, uh, interesting aspect uh, that I think is going to develop. And um, yeah, and in terms of, uh, I think we're going to continue seeing consolidation um, and we're going to continue seeing um, M&A. Uh, maybe not as big M&A as we saw in the past two years, you know, because uh, first of all, the big targets, there's less big targets. But I think we're going to continue seeing, uh, seeing, seeing a bit of that and there's going to be opportunity for that. The thing I personally worry about and um, and it's challenging is um is the the creativity you know it's so difficult to break through uh with a game and make it work that you know for us obviously it's a lot easier to have a success by you know it used to be you know as you know you know 80 you know you know 20 percent innovation 80 percent standing on the shoulder of giants right? right and i think that was the right balance to do a successful game right for a long long time and then if you put the engine into that we're probably at the 90 percent 10 percent but um, how do we make sure that we also are able to do the slightly more creative games that have the sort of breakthroughs that, that, that you want to have? So that's that's one of the things that I worry about. I don't think it's a problem right now immediately for us, uh, but it's something that I said definitely keeps me awake at night in terms of how can we make sure that we get that right balance in terms of innovation that allows us to to uh, you know to continue uh, succeeding in in the market. And I think that's linked to talent, that's linked to empowerment, that's linked to giving them the right tools. That's linked to trust and to knowing that you can fail, which is one of the advantages of being, I think, being part of Stillfront is, is you know, we're we're you know we're a very profitable company. Uh, we have very positive cash flow, uh, so you know we're in a situation where we can't take we can't take some of the risks that maybe would be harder to take if you weren't in that environment. Gotcha. Um, and looking forward into the into the future. If you had to call out maybe one or two things about what you're excited about in Stillfront's future that we haven't discussed yet, uh, what would you call out? I mean, I'm going to be honest. It's it's it's. I think we've just scratched the surface. <laughs> I love it. I honestly think you know we're we're just getting started in terms of what you can do with um, with leveraging talent where it is right with this this approach of this mix of you know. Uh, of being of of having you know centralized tools and centralized processes and coordination, but you know, but that that leverages you know local talent and having talent collaborate and do things together. I think we're just at the beginning of that, and and also in terms of in terms of tool sets uh, of things that, that that you know, if you look at it, you know, in, in our in our marketing app, we're great at performance marketing. But there's a lot of stuff that have changed in terms of go-to-market that we can build up and, and, and do better. Uh, I mean, I just have an endless list of task lists of things to do. The hard thing is to prioritize, you know, what is going to make the most difference uh, next uh, in terms of, you know, really helping helping our growth. So, but if I had to, to kind of, you know, zoom in uh, in terms of, I think, what's exciting, um, I think we have a real opportunity in terms of, you know, bringing games to Japan right now with six waves, uh, which we're working on. And 
I don't know if the first one or the second one or the third one is going to work out, but uh, we'll probably have a few failures before we get it right. But I think eventually we'll get it right because this, we just have the knowledge and we have the deep of portfolio to, to do that. So I think that's quite exciting. Um, I think uh, a quite overlooked uh, acquisition that we made is Joe Walker. Uh, Joe Walker is a really interesting uh, games company. Basically, it's an app, uh, which when we acquired it, I think they had about 27 games in the app. Now it's about 40 games in the app. So it's really an ecosystem with, you know, the whole cross-promo that people are talking about, getting people to play several games and all that. We've got that with Joe Walker. And I can see the KPIs. And I see how well that, that company is performing and how strong it is in the MENA region. And that is very exciting to me because there's a lot of insights there that I can take and I say, okay, Jay Walker could potentially be a mini version of what the whole storefront could be in the future if we do this right. Obviously differently, but it's giving us a lot of insight. So that I'm very excited about as well. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have to pay more attention to that too. That sounds exciting. Um, we don't really have time to do this, this last question justice, but I just want to ask you, you can give me your rapid fire response. Um, you know, through, through preparing for this interview, I noticed that um, you, you're on the board of the Tezos Foundation. And um, on LinkedIn, you say a lot of your like early stage investing has an emphasis on Web3, which you also just briefly hit on. Um, I'm curious, what do you need to see in order for Stillfront to make its first move into, into that space? Or do you think that's not going to happen? We'd just love to hear your quick take on that. I was telling you that we're not working on this already. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Awesome. Well, maybe we'll just leave it there then. And uh, it'll be a good tease for for everyone. Um, Alexis, final, don't, final don't, question. Please don't end line with it. We're doing R&D around this. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Good to know. Please um, don't end Alexis, an line. We're a public company. We have to be careful about what we say. But obviously, we have, uh, we're doing R&D and we have teams that are looking into the space very seriously. Awesome. Well, that's great to hear. Um, and just wrapping up, if listeners want to learn more about Stillfront or best follow you, where's the best place to do that? I mean, they're, uh, they're welcome to uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or uh, on Twitter. I'm at, at Alexis Bunt uh, on Twitter. Uh, and obviously, you know, they can, they, can, they can always email me at Alexis at Stillfront.com. Awesome. Well, Alexis, thank you again for joining me today. I always love learning more about Stillfront, um, hearing about what you've learned from, from operating this business with the great team that you have. So thanks again for coming on. And I look forward to, to watching where you all take the business next. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much. Awesome. And to all of our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to give us a like, subscribe, five stars. It would mean a lot. We'll put the links to all things Alexis and Stillfront in the episode description below. And of course, we'll drop some links to Novix resources as well. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>